0: Okay, we are live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates on today's show. I have two very special guests. Returning guests, it's Tom and Brett from PSYOP Cinema. This will be our sixth show. I posted five other shows on different topics. The original interview we had was about kind of my work looking into the occult, and we also covered the ultra-paranoid film, Parallax View. We've covered under the Silver Lake conspiracy theory. We did a show on the occult influence of Ed Sheeran and Bring Me the Horizon. And then I just posted something this week that I suggest people check out, which was an interview Tom had with a former member of Adam Waffen. His name goes, he goes by Theodore, but you can kind of see how much he knew and how much uh, some of the stuff that I wrote about he confirmed and was aware of and some of the murders and things like that. So I highly recommend people go check that out on William Ramsey Investigates or you could go to Psyop Cinema and check that out. But today, I, this is uh, they joined me to talk about a movie and a book and an author who I'm interested in. Always been interested in, very influential, especially the themes that he packs into his books. Now, his books became very popular as movie subjects after his death. And one of my favorite movies is uh, Blade Runner, based upon Do uh, Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? By Philip K. Dick. But we're going to talk about a Scanner Darkly. And I titled this Philip K. Dick and Richard Linklater's A Scanner Darkly with Tom and Brett of Psyop Cinema. So we're going to also analyze the film as well as the book and and the author. And I also found it interesting this kind of title is taken from 1 Corinthians and it's quoted. 1 Corinthians is actually quoted a couple of times throughout the book and film. But the full line from 1 Corinthians is, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. And I know in part, but then shall I know, even as I, know, I also am known. And so it's uh, the Scanner Darkly is a play on that, a glass darkly, a um, modern kind of take. And uh, so there's a lot to talk about. The book was originally published in 77, It was, but in the book, there was the activities take place in the future, like 20 years in the future in Orange County. It goes through a lot of drug use, but I think there's a lot of themes and a lot of important things that... Philip K. Dick packed into the book as well as a link later into the movie. But Tom and Brett can talk more about that as well. So Tom and Brett, welcome back to the show. Hey, great to be here.
1: Yeah, always I always wanted to talk cool.
0: to William. Yeah, likewise. Uh, I was really looking forward to this really topic and these characters, the actors, and there's a lot to kind of unpack with all these people. Even Alex Jones pops up in The Scanner Dark. I mean, who wants to start? Which one of you wants to start and kind of uh, give some first impressions of the film and book?
1: Brad, do you want to go ahead with this one? <clears throat> uh, yeah, yeah, I'll go ahead
2: with it. My first impressions of the film were, well, I mean, you know, Linklater's, Richard Linklater's work, which we'll, uh, we'll give a little bit of background on Linklater in a bit. But I mean, his I think his work just kind of gets sort of increasingly soulless after, you know, waking life. He's no longer this sort of, humanistic indie um uh, director his his work it's a pattern we've found with other directors we've analyzed like christopher nolan you know with these maverick directors become part of the hollywood establishment and they start to kind of take on the deranged worldview um, of the hollywood establishment and philip k dick cannot just be um equated with that establishment but dick has been very useful i think to a lot of uh anti-humanists, um, uh, out there. So it's a dreary movie. It is, I mean, I had, I tried to watch it a couple of times before and turned it off because of the, like the bug dope psychosis triggering stuff at the beginning, um, which is an info hazard. There's a few other ones, um, in, in this movie. Um, it was, it was watchable, but, um, basically pretty, pretty mediocre as a film, the messaging, which we're going to discuss at length, I think is basically dark and anti-human. So those are my first impressions.
1: Yeah, Brett, I totally agree. I mean, it's, I find PKD and Linklater to both be frustratingly mixed bags, uh, who obviously have a lot to recommend to them both. Um, uh, yeah, with, with Philip K. Dick, I think I, I agree that I see him more as as a tragic figure than a malevolent one. Obviously, like his, the film adaptations of his work and his work itself have just been a magnet for people interested in, in, in any of these kind of parapolitical themes or the paranormal itself, all these dy- dystopian ideas and all of that. Uh, I've never been somebody who's been a huge PKD fanboy, but he's always been just kind of around the cultural sectors that I've that I've been interested in and I I t- I don't at this point view him as somebody who is actively uh you know taking on a full role of um of of just kind of countercultural false prophet and all of that he's not he's not a Robert Anton Wilson or Terrence McKenna and I think he should be distinguished from those types but ultimately I do I do see him very much as a victim of the MK culture and you see that to different degrees in in his works both both in his his written work and in film adaptations of that and as we can get into, especially as things about the ending, things that happened in the last act uh, of this film, it really just does seem like uh, the desperate plea for justification of somebody, uh, so of somebody as who was victimized by, by the different aspects of the, the, uh, you, you know, the emerging reign of drug culture and surveillance culture and all of these things that Dick had such a clear and, and visceral view of. And Linklater also, this movie kind of, <laughs> it kind of bummed me out that, that Linklater directed something this very this deeply unpleasant yeah you know, somebody who was previously fixated on ideas involving uh, cultism and the paranormal and and all of that in very very unhealthy ways uh just like seeing the the kind of fetishization um of uh of these kind of schizo paranoid thought loops and their interactions with drugs and technology is very hard to watch and i know linklater uh said about the film that he's very much not uh that that he's not trying to glorify drug use he was trying to a show a nuanced version of it that there's these jovial kind of familial moments but he's trying to do a cautionary tale but still just by virtue of this being a movie and it trying to entertain and its subject matter it is still trying to suck the audience in into the fun of getting lost in all of these uh, loops and layers um and uh, and and i just have somewhat of a positive impression of link later of Linklater. just enjoying not not necessarily his worldview or anything but just enjoying his his style we talked about slacker some when we were on on the show last time and I, I i found that to be a very enjoyable watch and just looking at the trajectory of, of Linklater's career i'm not sure entirely if i agree that he lost uh the kind of uh the the, the kind of indie humanistic spark uh, that, that he used to have after he did waking life when you think about some of his more recent uh, more recent films or at least recent in the sense of over the last Ten years or so, you can see that he kind of goes back to at least trying to do that kind of thing. After a scanner, Darkly with material like, of course, Boyhood is very, very well known. Um, or uh, even uh, there's uh, there there's Everybody Wants Some. I think 2016. I think that one came out. Just a very another slice of life movie about um, about a, a about a college baseball team's uh, first you know, first weekend at school and um, you yeah, know just very very pleasant. And uh, so to think about. Uh, think about the resonance between, like, why Linklater was, was attracted to um, to the kind of very dark satire uh, and dystopian writing that Dick is doing here. I think that that's interesting, and I can say more. I can say more about this, but when I began to think a little bit more deeply about some other Linklater material uh, as of late, I realized that, like, okay, I, I don't think he's a malicious person himself. Certainly not compared to a lot of Hollywood filmmakers. But you can see kind of these MK culture themes penetrating into that. um, And I think that becomes less surprising after considering that he made a scanner darkly.
0: Right. I mean, it is an interesting film. And these are all first rate actors. I mean, I think even back then in 2006, when this came out around that time, these guys were all known figures, all came together to make this. What was an independent film, a smaller film? This is obviously not a big screen well, it is interesting that they all said okay to this, don't don't you think?
2: Well, it's I mean, so you have to look at the um, the production team that's that's behind it and begin with the executive producers George Clooney and Steven Soderbergh, who are both. It's no secret. I mean, they're both deep state um, assets. It appears that you have some people that had been part of Linklater's production teams in the past, people associated with Keanu Reeves, and then you had Clooney and Soderbergh and their operation. Um, kind of came together. So yeah, between all of that, they had, uh, had access to top flight actors. And Linklater has since, um you know, since the 90s uh, had that access. Erwin Stoff, who was one, there's a whole bunch of producers. It's one of those. It's kind of more like a movie that's that they make that's been made in the last five years or so, where you have like all these like endless, <laughs> endless production screens at the beginning and endless lists of producers. Like we did under the Silver Lake, I missed that Sam Lufty, uh, Britney Spears' as handler, was one of the executive producers because there were just so many of these producers. But Erwin Stauff is one of them. He was a produ- He was an executive producer on The Matrix. Um, and he's worked with Doug Lehman, who's also a deep state asset, whose father was a fed lawyer who actually served as chief counsel during Iran-Contra. Tony Pelota is one of the producers, does a lot of transhumanist stuff. Um, so yeah, looking at the production background of this, I think is, is telling and it makes a lot of sense how he was able to get all these big actors. And then, I mean, a lot of these actors are not, they're big actors, but they're really not very inspired here. And. Um, I think Harrelson is just really miscast, um, you know, altogether.
0: It, the one thing that ties all of them together is drugs, right? This whole topic of this kind of scanner dark is the drug culture, and they've all been entrenched in it. I'm not yeah. sure about Winona as much, but I thought she did that one. But these guys go back to a lot of, I mean, what, what did, right. what did uh, Downey famously said? He said, what was it? It's like I've got a shotgun in my mouth with my finger on the trigger and I like the taste of the gunmetal. Like that's how he was in and out of court, if you remember. So, yeah, isn't, that, isn't it
2: fascinating, the transformation of Robert Downey Jr. from, well, several transformations, you know, from the Brat Pack uh, to Academy Award winner. Less than zero, like, crying, Rumble, less than The zero. total tabloid. Yeah, less than zero, right? From the great, actually very good film. And then so he became a total tabloid figure. Um, junior in the in the nineties, and that was yeah, that was the peak of it. When he was like asking to go back to, basically said I'm I have a suicidal attachment to to drugs. And that's another story. his father, you know um, Robert Downey Senior, who's a director who was very much entrenched in the in the counterculture in the sixties. I mean admitted you know they gave him you know weed when he was like eleven years old and stuff. Like we just thought this was okay. And um, he's actually been very honest about it, Robert Downey Senior, about how they like gave him drugs when he was a kid, Robert Downey Jr.
0: Right, and that ties them to Philip K. Dick, a massive drug taker, who said that this was all something he experienced in California. So, the, and that's the really the kind of we want to talk about a PSYOP theme, the circular Psyop theme is this: Why are people attracted to drugs? Who's pushing the drugs? And then, I mean, I don't want to ruin the end of the, the film, but it's one big cycle: it's the drug cycle of uh, surveillance and state power and state punishment. And where's Coming from right, where's all this stuff coming? It's really interesting. I think when you look at these guys' real backgrounds and the books and the film that they made,
1: yeah, very much so. And oh, just one other note about people—interesting note about people involved with the production of the movie. You know, obviously, there's the uh, the rotoscoping animation style, which which really makes it stand out. Which Linklater also employed with Waking Life. Um, in addition to having people on this who are involved with that project. Uh, animators involved with this film and it would go on to be involved with uh, with I I think Minnow Mountain is the name of their their, the animation company and involved with uh, interesting projects irrelevant looking projects uh, that um, I guess there's this adult animation series which I have not seen but undone which is uh, which is apparently a typical thing about uh, trauma of a car accident, unlocking uh, paranormal abilities involving you know, time travel and that kind of thing. Uh, they involving uh, involved with a uh, tower, I guess, in uh, an animated film about the 1966 Austin Clock Tower shooting. Um, which that one kind of stands out in my mind, is because uh, the and one one interesting thing about that event is Whitley Strieber never being able to quite decide whether he was there or not, or if it was a screen memory or something like that. Just for those who follow Striever's writings, that something comes up over the years. There's different interpretations of, of him having said for years that he was there and changing his mind repeatedly. Um, and then also uh, animators involved with a Richard, uh, a recent Richard Linklater movie, which I haven't seen, which is called Apollo 10 and a half. I don't know if either of you are familiar with this one, um, but it's basically inspired by his own uh, upbringing in houston but with the um the conceit of a child who's been sent on a space mission um and when uh, secretly being trained by nasa to go into space combined with his very kind of um very uh just nostalgic you know, vignette style of filmmaking about different aspects of his childhood there. So uh, childhood, uh, a child being shot into space on behalf of NASA certainly, <laughs> certainly is a bit of a red flag for me. So just uh, so the animators involved with this film were also involved with all of those projects. Oh, interesting.
0: And I found out Winona, his uh, writer, when she had her shoplifting arrest, she had eight prescriptions for, for painkillers. So they've all had drug histories. And yeah. most notably, uh, Reeves Reeves was friends with River Phoenix and River Phoenix, quote, overdosed or whatever happened to him. But they were like garbage heads back in the day. So you can see why they would be interested in attaching themselves to a project with these themes.
2: Yeah. And Harrelson, just for people that don't know his association with drugs, he's been a big marijuana advocate, pro-marijuana advocate for um for quite some time, for a few decades. And I would also add that he is the son of um, uh, Charles Harrelson, who was uh, executed for killing a federal judge and who threatened both when he was being arrested and in prison to reveal stuff about his role in the the Kennedy assassination. And then shortly after he's executed, Woody Harrelson gets, um, I believe I have the timeline correct, and shortly after that, he suddenly gets this role in uh, Cheers as Woody. Interesting. Yeah, and Harrelson—he was a hitman, so it
0: wasn't his first kill. He was like the old Texas. Uh,
2: yeah, he was a contract, a contract man. killer for the deep state. I mean, that's yeah. that's what he was. Yeah, no doubt. And, oh, and I'm sorry, Woody. Woody has also said on camera that that his father was in the CIA, or he's said that right without he's said it uh, without saying it, uh, so to speak. If you watch the interview, yeah, he he strongly, strongly implies that his father was in the CIA. Oh, interesting.
1: I didn't know that. Um, oh, and since you mentioned, uh, you know, River Phoenix, that's, of course, just an interesting figure in relation, of course, to, you know, to Walking Phoenix, who we've thought about in, in relation to our Joker studies, and we'll be thinking about a lot more. And I don't know if you had a chance to hear our Jared Leto uh, episode that we did recently, but Leto, uh, at one point when talking about his habit of, um, of making up details about his life to confuse the press to be more interesting, cited River Phoenix as an inspiration for that. So River tends to show up in some interesting places.
0: Yeah, interesting. So they, they but they were together, I think uh it was Keanu Reeves and then they were in my own private Idaho, right? Wasn't that kind of like a
2: yeah. gay themed
0: yeah. film, if um, I remember?
2: Is it is Gus Van Sant? Is there some? I'm trying to I'm trying to remember if it had the gay. I think there might have been. It's about street. It was about you know street people and um, drugstore cowboy. He did that kind of pair of films. And yeah, it was yeah, it was River Phoenix and, and Keanu Reeves. In my own private Idaho. Right.
0: So I mean, but there's I mean, I, one of the things that's differing in the book. I didn't know there were that many quotes from German. Like I saw just many. German... Quotes I was kind of going through and trying to figure that out. So he's quoting from Faust and from Goethe uh, in the book that didn't make it into the film. I found that interesting. He's a little bit more culturally astute than what comes across in the film. Although in the film, there was other quotes from First Corinthians at one point. forgot what he says. Oh, he says, death is swallowed up in victory, is what at the very end, near the very end, Keanu Reeves states that, which is First uh, Corinthians 15.
1: But, right uh, yeah. right and then of course that i think is a really important thing to consider about pkd in general is it's something that both detractors and, and pkd boosters or even worshipers to a certain degree uh, often the trash stratum of culture you know quote from Vallis, you know about um about about pkd finding symbols of the divine in just the lowest aspects of culture and that's often that can be read in a very positive way it can be dismissed in a very superficial way but also i think it can be very destructively read in a positive sense in a way that can get people uh, trapped in that trash stratum, just like uh, looking for the divine when the divine can be found in much better places. And I think that, um, and I, and I think that someone like Philip K Dick, he's not entirely wrong to say that uh, remarkable synchronicities and precognitions can be found when delving through that, that aspect of culture, those, those, those trashier aspects of human existence I just don't necessarily think that that's a good thing. I don't think that these things necessarily are signposts along the road towards spiritual wisdom or anything like that. You know, these uh, these can be you know, traps for spiritual delusion. And I think PKD, unlike other major figures in this the, that this kind of countercultural set a set of figures, I think I think PKD is earnestly trying to get out of that and earnestly trying to avoid those traps. I just don't necessarily think he entirely succeeds and i think that this movie is a pretty stark example of that so i, I guess i'll warn the audience you know for for, for spoilers because you know, i can't really dissect some of the most important aspects of this movie without getting into without getting into how this ends but i think that uh that there's a, a few key scenes that really show what's going on here one of them being the being the one with the, the kind of inner monologue where he uh, where the scanner darkly thing comes from but i guess it's uh but thinking about the role of these these agents who turn out to be fighting the you know, the, the new path at, at the end, I think is really uh, is really key to understanding what's going on here. So you, know, you have the new path, this corporation uh, that we I think they're first mentioned the film at this um, this Brown Bear Lodge meeting. Uh, they were there. They're they're being called this their sponsor for this lodge that uh, that the Keanu character uh, is is speaking to and is disguised suit that he's just switching identities every fraction of a second so no one can tell who he is um and then there's this really important subtle again there's some i don't love this movie i certainly don't love this movie on a thematic level i don't love it aesthetically either but there are some very uh very clever scenes in just terms of how subtle but effective they are and one is when um fred the keanu character uh when um uh when in his role in this kind of law enforcement this this drug enforcement uh individual not as bob arctor who he is when he's in the in the drug house with the with the other characters so fred is talking to his supervisor hank neither of them know who the true one the true identity of the other ones and um and then he's he's complaining about how the new path has this privileged place in society they're the one place in the country that's not subject to this surveillance. They can't be scanned, he says. Um, and his supervisor, uh, Hank, who we later find out to be um, to, to be one of the, the supposed white hats, who's actually fighting New Path, pretends to dismiss his concerns and says it's just their contract with the government. Um, and uh, then it's implied, but it's not actually shown, I think that's very clever, that Hank, uh, who has given Fred Keanu the idea that a dealer might be hiding there a new path so the idea has been incepted into bob Arctor, fred keanu's head that uh that new path might be worth investigating that uh that at their um that at their facilities the you know the, the the dealers might be hiding and now at the end of the movie we find out that um we find out that uh that the keanu character's mind has purposefully been destroyed by drugs he's been made to be addicted Precisely, so that these white hats in the system who are secretly fighting New Path can send him to that facility to gather evidence. So that's uh, so there, that that earlier scene of uh, of Fred and Hank talking, uh, and this movie is hard to summarize because of how purposely convoluted it is, is really key to you know to setting up the ending. So um, so we find out later that, um, that 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 Hank also in the movie Donna. Uh, is working with this other officer, Mike, and they're portrayed. And this is toward the very end, and this is portrayed very, um, very much like these are uh, benevolent people. This is part of a good conspiracy within the very sinister surveillance apparatus, um, and it's meant to me- meant to expose this this evil corporation that we're being that is both propagating the drug war and the drugs themselves. That that is you know uh, perpetrating the cycle. That all the characters, especially. Bob Arctor, Keanu, Fred, is, uh, are all caught up in. And then, but I think the really, really evil thing about this messaging is that um, these supposed white hats are within the text of the film very explicitly also perpetrating the cycle. It's just because they, they, they got Bob addicted and then they gaslight him to tell him, oh, it was just purely your own decision uh, so that they could send him on this mission. And then at the very end of the movie, uh, that that's um, that, that's vindicated because you have him picking up the flower that shows where the where the substance, desubstance substance, death drug comes from, and pocketing it so he can give it to his friends, basically his handlers, his white hat agents on on Thanksgiving. So uh, also fortuitous timing to uh, to record this episode given Thanksgiving is coming up so soon, and the end of this movie is about um, is is basically about uh, you know, Keanu's going to expose the conspiracy on Thanksgiving. So I so there's a lot that can be can be said there and either I'm interested in either of your thoughts I have more thoughts on how a couple scenes really draw out this point but basically but basically the message of the movie is that uh there's that he's caught in this endless cycle of this uh, of this corporation uh running both sides of the of the of the drug war and drug production but thankfully there are good agents white hats who are controlling him who destroy his mind for for a good purpose and they have their own kind of gnostic justification that we can that we can talk about but it's actually very similar i think to conspiracy theory which we talked about when we were on last time the the it's 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 darker much much darker um on a, on a superficial tone level than that movie but it's the same same ending that our protagonist got his uh, got his good handlers he's out of, he's no longer in control being controlled by the bad handlers he's found the good ones who are who have um destroyed his mind for a positive purpose and uh, everything will be all right
0: yeah, it's, uh, I think you keyed in that whole cyclical thing. And I think that's what uh, Dick is trying to capture originally is this whole pop, you know, the whole problem, which is still extant today of the cyclical nature of the drugs where the state actually could be the one involved or some creepy third party and keeping this whole paranoiac police state um, structure, political and legal structure intact. Right? So they're all caught up in it. She's in it. He's in it, uh, even Downey's character, right? So they're all either getting arrested or thrown in jail or investigated. So they're all caught up in it, whether they like it or not. And all of the concomitant paranoia and panopticon searching that they're doing, watching each other creates this whole atmosphere of suspicion. And I think that that's, that's in that drug life. that's the, I think he caught, captured it right. I think it's still happening today. Anybody who's involved in pharmaceutical trade, opioids, uh, it's very strange because the government allows a lot of these things to happen. And you can look at the opioid crisis. Like the government didn't deregulate and didn't harass these people for years and, and cause death, right? And But also people going to jail and not really being handled. You don't really see these people being reached out to uh, to solve their problem in a in a functional way, right? It's like you got to go back through the system, you got to be churned through the system, and that's how it ends, right? Is that that's the full revelation of Keanu Reeves' this character as he finds out that new path are the producers, right?
2: Yeah, and the movie reveals the process by which he's uh, inducted, you know, into the <clears throat> into the system. To me, that the two big themes of the movie are the drug war psyop and what I call mass intelligence culture, um, which is just a sort of mainstreaming of, of intelligence culture and sort of conscripting the population through Hollywood and things into basically being intelligent or accepting the values of intelligence culture. And so on now within the sort of drug war psyop angle of it, the mechanism that's being used corresponds to exactly what we on psyop cinema called red pill. You know, programming and something I've explained, you know, at at some um, at some length, but substance D, which is the name of the drug that they say 25% of the population is addicted to by then. It's actually it's literally a red pill um and i'll quote imdb here to, to show the further connections to pk dick and the, and the red pill but um some user on imdb wrote the red pills known as substance death the drug that alters a user's reality bear a striking resemblance to the red pills given to the character douglas quaid in the film total recall 1990 that in this instance are used to bring quaid out of the recall memory implant induced reality if you watch the movie it's kind of confusing because you don't know whether the Red Pill." He's being told it's going to free you from this false reality, but it's not clear whether it's bringing him into a, a more – a second Matrix, as Jason Orsey would call it into a more – And Total
0: nested. Recall is based on a Philip
2: K. Dick book too, right? Precisely. So Philip K. Dick uh, is, is somehow at the ground floor of this red pill thing, and I might have explained this to you yeah. listeners before. Prior sorry, to The know. Matrix, right? Matrix was 1999, sorry. Exactly. All that's prior to the Matrix. And and I just I, I always have to give a little bit more of the background now that we brought up Total Recall. But before Total Recall in 1989, Charles Manson gave this interview with Geraldo Rivera in which he uses this term or this this red pill trope. He refers to it with like precisely the same meaning. He's asked by Geraldo, like, why is there like so much violence and murder in society? And he says, um, and, and he's basically saying you're causing it by showing it to them and making it edgy and cool. And he says they didn't know what the red pill was until you told them not to take it um so it's i mean it's the, the the red pill is the red apple right it's the uh fruit in the garden of it's the forbidden fruit right so and it's a, and so what red pill programming is is it's reverse psychology it's holding up this red fruit which is what you want somebody to go for and you say you know kind of like uh kind of like dirty uh or kind of like um what's his name jack palance and shane you know pick up the gun you know pick it up They're just daring you it's it's really powerful but of course it's a it's a trap uh, essentially so in this movie it's like drug enforcement has just become the justice for the total militarization of the police, the endless expansion of police powers, total surveillance state, um, with this like highly compartmentalized information system, and um, in this opening scene, Keanu, that the the one Thomas was describing at the lodge, the Bear Lodge, Keanu is supposed to read this script, and he's inside of the um, the scramble suit, and he's reading the script, and at one point he just balks and he won't read anymore. It's where he's like supposed to be threatening the um the drug pushers with retribution and he says uh this is the kind of stuff that gets people on drugs you have it right there in the first scene and first scenes are very important in establishing the kind of thematic outlook a constellation of the film and you have red pill programming being um, defined right there so yeah he gets it they're trying to get people on drugs that's where you also hear that new path recovery um is, is hooked into the system and they're, they're exempt from surveillance. Why are they exempt from surveillance? Because they're creating the drugs that create the problems that justify the, to- the expansion of, of the police state. Um, and this brings in Alex Jones, right? Because the voice of wisdom here uh, is really is not really Keanu. It's it's Alex Jones, and he's uh, kind of this voice in the wilderness on the street with a megaphone, telling everybody that yeah, substance D is bad news, but you know so is the drug war. And and where did it come from? Of course, it came from a bio lab. But um, but it's Jones here who sees like he's seeing beyond that dialectic of red pill programming, the transgressive freedom, you know, like you can break the rules and be free, or or be oppressed, or the oppressive conformity. And that's what happens with Keanu, right? He has a family life. And, but it's just really oppressive and dull and stultifying. And so he wants to break out of it. And this gets him, um, you know, he takes the red pill, which here, right, is intelligence work as well as substance D. Um, so. Um, and and it so I mean, it, sort of the idea of red pill program is it sort of unleashes the erotic energy and then that kind of undirected eros that they're claiming is freedom ends up just being manipulated and then channeled and always and then you can be blackmailed with it, um, right? So that justifies the the expansion of of state powers. Um, um, you know, yeah, but Thomas mentioned how the the process too of the gaslighting that goes on, and and I mean, there's like direct reference, and that's in that's in Dick too. Like, I haven't read this novel, but I have read um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep and several other Dick novels, and they actually reference um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep when the psychologist people, the psychology people are doing their tests on him. There's a the name of the, the laptop has a reference to the test they use to distinguish between humans and androids, which is kind of a behavioral modification control. Um, device uh, actually it's a sort of Scientology um, thing so you see they're using that they tell him like he he wants to get a gift for Donna and she tells him you should She's it's obviously a sort of hypnotic suggestion she tells him to go get her a blue flower the blue flowers um, being the source of um, of the, the this is like I call it high intensity red pill programming I mean I think in low intensity is what you see through the sexual revolution and stuff but when you see what they're doing to Keanu you could call it like high intensity um you know, um, red pill programming, I would, I would call it. And so, um, I I mean, I I could say a whole bunch of things about the intelligence culture aspect, but that's the, those are kind of my, my big thoughts on the drug war side and what it's revealing about the the mechanism, um, of, of how this, of how this works. Right.
0: I mean, it's, 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 they're caught up and they become pawns in that larger mechanism, right? So they are, that's his job, but he's also a user who goes through the whole process to, to new path. And it's interesting you bring up Scientology because Dick was in something like that, that was called ex or for he, his treatment, he was trying to get treated too. So there's like tie-ins from reality into this uh, fictional narrative too of him and, uh, is interesting because they compared what Dick was into Synanon, and the guy who I talked to who, who litigated against Synanon, and they sent a, a snake and put it into his post office box, and he got he got bit. His name is Paul Morantz. He just recently passed away. So I that was uh, back in October last month, and you can listen to a three hour interview with him. But he knew this guy from Synanon very well. So that environment of New Path which also reminded me of kind of world vision too. It had a world visionist kind of feel Scientology feel where you have these, you know, suited, uh, people within there who, who spout aphorisms and things like that. And supposedly there to help you. And that's where Keanu gets dropped off there at the end, right? He gets dropped off after he's having his overdose or breakdown or whatever. And, uh, I think that they captured that kind of thing that was happening in the 70s, too. There were all kinds of weird drug help. I can't remember some of them. Synanon was one of them. There were other ones. Narconon. There were all these things back then, you know, 50 years ago, to help people get through their whatever their addictive behavior was. And it just was all became part of the, the system. All become this circular, flat circle of these people never getting out going from addiction to rehab to addiction and having these huge administrative bodies or, or intelligence, like you said, or, or the police state justifying itself by something that they want to actually maintain instead of actually end or cure. And I think that goes to the present day.
1: Absolutely. It does for sure. And I think what's what one thing that's really tragic here is you, know, so you have the uh, the you have like the text on the on screen from the end of the at the end of the film, which is taken from the author's note that that ends the novel where you have PK Dick just uh, talking about the basically these people that he knew who were, were victims of drug use, who were punished far more than they deserved for for their mistakes, he says. And it's just this very mournful tone, and he includes this list of names, including Phil, which I think is just him including himself on there. With physical or psychological damage that they have um, that they have from from their drug use, and so a lot of this is definitely P.K.D. trying to make sense of this of what happened to him and what happened to others. But when I say earlier about there being this kind of pleading nature for justification at the end, it's that well, it's well, it's, well, it's interesting because the because of this this very dark paranoid gnostic view of reality that we're getting here. There, there is no way out. It's just the circles that continually connect back into, back into themselves, either on a social level with the drug war, historical dynamics that you're describing, or on a psychological level through these people's different delusions, which are, are taken very literally in the movie through the ambiguity of, of identity and uh, the shifting nature of that through hallucinations or people are pretending to be other people or, or all of those things. But I think that there's a couple a couple scenes that really are, um, are necessary to think about, to understand exactly what's going on, um, exactly what's going on in the ending. And I, I think that one of them is the scene where, where uh, Keanu is talking about the scanners, where he says, whatever's watching, it's not human. What does a scanner see? Does it see into me, into us clearly or darkly? I hope it sees clearly because I can't any longer see into myself. I see only Merc. I hope for everyone's sake, the scanners do better. Because if the scanner sees only darkly the way I do, then I'm cursed and cursed again and will and will only wind up dead this way, knowing very little and getting that little fragment wrong too. So at that point in the movie, the Bob Arctor character, Keanu, he's so lost into his drug use and his roles. He's the informant in the house, but he's paranoid about the informant in the house because he doesn't remember that that's him and all of that. And I did find some of those aspects of the film amusing in spite of myself, in spite of just being so horrified by everything. Being portrayed, and so what is he hoping for there? He hopes that the scanners do better. This, this kind of surveillance tech, uh, espionage-laden drug culture, this, 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 this PKD world. He's hoping that because his own mind is so fractured he's just become so paranoid and schizo and as just the the mk culture has just destroyed any sense of self because of the red pill programming that brett was describing that he's been subjected to he can only hope that the scanners do a better job he hopes that there's some kind of wisdom behind these endless cycles of uh, 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 of government machinations and uh, drug hallucinations that he's been subjected to and then uh and then so i think that that's a very very key set of lines in the movie, um, and then and then later on, when we find out that the other character in the house that he's making romantic overtures to that, that are being rejected, Donna, that actually is his boss, Hank, because again, these people in their uh, drug enforcement capacity, uh, um, as those officers, they don't know who the other one is. Uh, so you, we find out that uh, that that's been her all along. Uh, after he explicitly like we're like we're talking about gaslights him and it's really uh it's really hard to watch him telling him uh hank quote-unquote telling fred quote-unquote that you know no one held a gun to your head you did this to yourself and then like in another couple scenes when um when donna i guess real name audrey is talking to mike again the two white hat agents they're openly talking about oh we did this to him but it was for for but it was for a greater cause and uh, right before she kind of dumps him into the place that's going to take him to the New Path facility, she gives him these these lines saying that there'll be a recognition and some spark in a disguised form that will reveal itself to you and guide you. So this very Gnostic language, this divine uh, spark disguised in himself underneath all these layers and layers of um, of social and psychological and perhaps metaphysical deception, she's telling him like that's still in you but basically, it's so cynical because that's that's his handler. That's the person who has participated in the wholesale destruction of his body and mind, giving him this language of you're on this Gnostic mission. And I think that that's very telling there about a lot of people who get involved in these kind of ideas who think they're on that kind of Gnostic mission. They're just being manipulated and controlled and led into these dissociative delusions, which is, of course, a very big theme of Psy of Cinema and what Brett and I talk about. On our show, but then also, also very telling. In addition to that Gnostic language after the the gaslighting scene, is that when Audrey and Mike, two white hats, are talking, she expresses doubt about the you know the obviously uh, the obviously incredibly morally dubious, to put it mildly, uh, strategies that they're taking here and destroying Bob's mind to make him a spy for them at the New Path facility. And then Mike tells her that God's M.O. is to transmute evil into good. Uh, And that the whole process is hidden beneath the surface of our reality. It will only be revealed later. And even then, the people of the future, our children's children, will never know this awful time that we have, that we've gone through, and the losses we took. Well, maybe some footnote in a minor history book, a brief mention with no list of the fallen and so that's important for a couple reasons. One is that again, it's it's total justification. It's uh, it's the idea of it's the idea of PKD just really helped putting himself into this this character and helping like this was done to me for a reason. I I tragically lost my mind to drugs and to getting lost in all these gnostic loops of this call of my cultural exploration. But maybe throughout all of these layers, one of them was a good one, and this had to happen to me, to me for a reason. He just can't quite bring himself to see the full tragedy of this and that it's no it's not a good thing to be traumatized to be a secret agent or a superhero like we talk about on the show all the time um but he but like maybe the people who did this to me were more part of this greater gnostic purpose but then also notice mike's uh, mention of a list of the fallen and maybe will be in some footnote in a minor history book a brief mention with no list of the fallen is the end of his lines to audrey and then of course just a couple scenes later we do get a list of the fallen. That's the end of the movie. Uh, and so I think the audience is supposed to unconsciously see that and be gratified by it. Be like, wow, this movie is doing... It's so good that this movie exists because it's doing what the characters had hoped would happen but but thought would never happen, that there would actually... Uh, the stories of these heroes would be told, these heroes being these drug addicts destroyed by MK culture. So, both, um, so for, for both the movie... And the book, there's this kind of self-justification, uh, this, this glorification of the idea that this is um, that the film and book themselves are part of this positive Gnostic purpose of this plan within the system. It's participating in all this delusion and schizo stuff and paranoia and drug use, but you're on a mission, and you, as the audience, now are kind of being recruited for that because you've borne witness to that and you've seen that. So, um, despite all the cautionary tale aspects and what, however, well-meaning. PKD was and I think he very much was as a person overall maybe this particular work is more dubious ultimately I think that this movie is just it's, uh, is, it's, it's, it's a complete failure to escape the second matrix
0: yeah it's interesting you mentioned narcissism because Dick mentions Tyler D. Chardon in there and they have quotes I think the barest character I don't think he said it in the movie and I couldn't watch the movie too uh, all of it's in entirety but I had to take it in a little 20 minute Snippets, but he does talk. I mean, Barris, the character talks about uh, Christ everywhere present and everywhere growing more great. Christ, the final determination and plasmatic principle of the inner universe. And then Arctur says, "What is that?" And he says, "Chardon, Tyler D. Chardon." So it's interesting that he puts it. And that's actually one element of Dick that I find fascinating is his theological bent. He definitely has a kind of. Uh, biblical view and some of his views they're there and it's there in this book at the very end this creep from new paths says to arctor this isn't your god anymore though it once was so he's imputing to arctor that his real god was this drug death or whatever they call it more ontologia
2: yeah so you might say that following the what dick called the 2374 uh, experience, meaning February and March of 1974, this like string of altered state mystical experiences that he had that had a very Gnostic content. I mean, all of his work from then on, Val's, it's, um, and this book, by the way, was written, I think, or that was conceived and written kind of before this. Um, but all that later work, you could say, is a kind of theosophy, not necessarily in the technical, like Blavatsky sense, but, or, or yeah, it's a kind of, theology right and i so yeah with with chardin and some of this stuff this is kind of a, a, a this is a really big big subject but i don't think dick is his uh i mean i there are are, are the kind of spiritual outlook of Hollywood is Gnostic. Okay, first of all. So I mean, well Richard Stanley has said that, that the secret religion of Hollywood is is Gnosticism. And you know, beginning the late 90s, you have it, you know, kicking into to high gear, this this Gnostic worldview, which is on display here. I'll say a few more things about it. But I mean, so Dick is an important contributor to this, but you have to make certain distinctions between Dick's Gnosticism. And, well, the ancient Gnostics on the one hand, and also the kind of pop pop Gnosticism um, or Neo-Gnosticism. And so typically in the Gnostic systems, the creator, the controller is not really God and is usually really bad and evil. And is all about power and, and control and creating simulated realities to get you stuck in, um, you know, so but Dick this is not Dick's view. His view is that the creator is actually good and he has this very complicated principle of entropy, basically kind of spiritual entropy that happens, but through kind of miraculous means, the creator re enters the creation and sort of, and I'm, sort of, I'm thinking of um, Scott Bakula in uh, *Quantum lead and, and, and sets right what once went wrong. Um, so, and that is that is his view. That, but it's another. It's so it's Gnostic in endless numbers of ways. I mean, it involves sort of inversion, right? It involves flipping reality back over, and um, and it, um, yeah, it it, inv- it involves, but basically, with Dick, so he 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 wrote this uh, gigantic. His largest work is called *The Exegesis*. And it is, I have the published copy. I mean, it's a doorstopper. It's like what's published is like 1500 pages and that's by no means Um, all of it. It's basically a bunch of diary entries where he's trying to interpret the experiences of 2374 that inspire all of his later work. And he goes through all kinds of, you know, everything from sort of paranoid explanations of Soviet um, weapons beamed at him to the CIA to all kinds of then he gets into various kinds of spiritual speculation and it never really ends it just keeps he just keeps kind of sifting through. he's very open-ended he never can come to any kind of conclusion but he's convinced of sort of that he's gotten this mystical download of sort of the truth of um whatever the parts of the Bible that Gnostics want, I mean, that's part of Gnosticism. It's a kind of, you have the Gnostic downloads, you can go grab sacred scriptures, and you recognize what's true and what was inserted by blue meanies. And you know, so he was definitely that kind of exegete, his exegesis. So that's where the, a lot of the biblical stuff comes in. that's where a lot of the, um, and yeah, I mean, some of those, I mean, all of those references are are not theologically correct. You know, some of them are worse Um you know than others. Basically, that's what I can say um, about that aspect of it. But the what's going on in the in the movie to me is like that it's a complementarity between the Gnosticism we're talking about, um, the the um, and, and Dick, by the way, also his simulation hypothesis thing that's gotten so so faddish. I mean, he practically inaugurated that at a sci-fi conference in the 70s when he gave this speech saying that he'd figured out that we're all in a simulation. That was very much a part of the content. So this isn't the real world. It's a fake world. It's probably a computer-generated world. Um, you know, science fiction, too, about sort of taking religious things and putting them into the register of scientism and science fiction and... And things. I mean, um, but in this movie, like that the intelligence culture like very much um, complements that because what it's saying is like even the best of us can't get out of it. So the yeah, the good guys are also basically making Manchurian candidates to infiltrate the bad guys, and they're all playing you know the same the same games. You just have to hope that the good will somehow come out of it because. Um, but but it's what you really have is this disorienting you know, ontologically and morally disoriented. Because if you don't know what reality, what's really going on in reality, like how do you even evaluate, okay, maybe it's okay to create Manchurian candidates or maybe that's just the, that's how the deck, the deck is stacked, you know? So just these, you know, nested rings of intrigue and and deception and disorientation. And what I'll say for the movie is it doesn't glamorize intelligence culture. It's kind of like the spy who came in from the cold. That, that way I'll, I'll give that movie, like it doesn't make it sexy, it doesn't make it cool, but it does say there's no way out of it. Basically, so it's black. It's like this is blackpilling people in that way.
0: Yeah, I agree. It's very drab. It's very intrusive. So then, it's not something cool. And it also like uh, the intelligence, the insight is like they're in, the insight them. There's a lot of epistemology in the book and the movie, but it's like you're looking into that, and then you're looking into you, and then Bob asks, "Who's Bob Arctor?" That's you. So the kind of like loses his. Individuality in this whole system too, which is kind of strange. But there also is a mention in the book that I found interesting was Tim Leary, who is the godfather of Winona Ryder, and who was at the front end of this whole kind of pro drug use, drug use for uh, you know, I de- he definitely had a Gnostic view of reality, but uh, drug use as a, as a positive to create enlightenment or find God or being spiritual, right? Which I think in this book, that is not reflected in this book at all. They're in, on drugs, but they are not um, finding some type of enlightenment through the use. They're, kind, they're, they're finding kind of a relief from the drabbiness, don't you think? Do, would you agree with that?
1: I do agree with that. I mean, I think that, that uh, PKD's attunement to the real darkness and tragedy of what's going on in a lot of ways saves this work and a lot of his work from being, I think, more psyopy than, than they could be. I could imagine an alternate timeline <laughs> to use a very PKd mode of thinking, but an alternate timeline in which if he was less damaged as a person and therefore less almost obsessively introspective and um, a less uh, less lost in the gnostic labyrinth of his own mind and his own kind of um, obsessive evaluation and reevaluation of metaphysics and his own spiritual experiences, if he was a little bit more coherent, he might have had the hubris that could have allowed him to be a more sinister figure, uh, in line with some of the other the other cultural counter I mentioned, or even perhaps an L. Ron Hubbard type, or or something like that. Uh, and you know, presumably, one can imagine another alternate time in, in which our culture wasn't so pathological, in which uh, in, in which neither would uh, would Dick's work have to uh, have to reflect such pathology. But I do think it is kind of a middle way in here, where yeah, it's it's it's. it's it's blackpilling um, as as Brett said, it's not uh, it's Dick wasn't, uh, wasn't transformed into true, into being a true agent of MK culture, but really there is also um, also seemed like there was no real way out for him. And I think that that's, that's the the role of um, the role of Gnosticism is very important in relation to what we think of as, as the second matrix that we talk about a lot on the show. This, this concept that we get from that we get from Jason Horsley and, um, and uh, there's so much of conspiracy culture that that's caught up in these Gnostic ideas of um, uh, of the second matrix. I mean, obviously, a, a very dramatic example of that is something like QAnon. Um, but then there are plenty of other more canonical examples within conspiracy literature as well that I think reflect those same those same tendencies. And um, and and and, uh, and it's such a it's such a subtle thing because with Gnosticism isn't per se, what I would identify as the Luciferian religion of the future. But it's just one tool in the toolkit of uh, our cultural engineers. And it's a very, um, and it's a very powerful one, because it can just entrap so many people who catch on to the fact that blue pill consensus reality um, just is untenable, or that there are cultural engineers or anything like that. But then by by punting to this, this uh, this this reality of absolute de- deception, which there's no way out aside from maybe perhaps your inner spark of divinity, it neutralizes you from ever actually finding uh, finding paths to uh, to actual foundational truths that could free you from 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 MK culture. And um, and so I think that you know you see a lot of those complexities with P- with PKD with his um, sometimes very silly and sometimes uh, interesting if dangerous and sometimes insightful musings on metaphysics and his spiritual experiences with his oscillation between uh between Christian and Gnostic uh language and, and and all of that. I mean um you know it stands out to me some of some of these things about about him, just the way that he would his kind of preoccupation with manifestations of the divine feminine, you know, I think shows some real danger there. Cause I think that as I've said on on so i cinema many times, the, the religion of the future is in many ways a dark religion of of the divine feminine. So the idea of of Vallis is being associated with this kind of AI, pure rational, feminine consciousness. Uh, some red flags there. Uh, his uh, <laughs> uh, in terms of PKD's own sa- psychic fracture. That was his one idea that he was also a first-century Christian uh, named Thomas. I think I, I think it's interesting. Thomas twin. You know, he, he literally twinned into this other Thomas from from the first century. So there's so there's that. Wasn't but- it
0: sorry to interrupt? But wasn't it the symbol of the fish? the christian fish symbol that really sent him off i remember that was it yeah i have to go back and look at his story
2: he had yeah oh do you know yeah so he had um he kind of attributed it possibly to the effects. so yeah at that time he wasn't on amphetamines anymore that was his addiction was amphetamines at one time he wasn't on amphetamines but he'd gone to the dentist i think earlier that day and he was feeling maybe some effects from whatever they'd inject with. And somebody came, some woman came to the door. She had the wrong door and she had a Jesus fish oh, that's um, pendant. And he said, that's when the sort of the pink light beamed him. And he, yeah, it was, that was with the, that's where the fish. And then, yeah, then he, then he found out that actually he's in some, well, the world's not real. He's in some kind of weird time loop there, or there's like overlapping timelines. He's actually in, um, you know, the, the third century or something. And he realized the Gnostics sort of were, were at the, at the end of time and the apocalypse really happened. And, or these are among the, his interpretations of the, of whatever was going on in his brain. But I mean, something, he clearly had some, something got triggered in his brain at, at this time. And it, um, in some ways lasted till the end of his life when he suddenly died. Um,
0: yeah. Right, and it reflects what's going on in this book, right? So it's his life, and then the, the whole larger culture and the social engineering of drugs, which are illegal, but you can find everywhere, and the trap that people are in and can't get out of, and some die. I mean, that's the whole thing, is this drug or whatever, what is it, it's Moore's ontological god of death, right? So the counterpart of Thanatos, so that, I think that's the point that he's saying, is like, you're locked into this thing of death. That's the real psyop in the real world reflected in his book and film which is also so people are going through the psyop in real time um that i think is reflected in the scanner document.
2: i can't see through it yeah. yeah a question for you and to go to go back a little bit back to the um the rehab facility and the cult aspect you were you were alluding to you mentioned um world vision right so it was was world vision doing this kind of, because that's interesting because Mark David Chapman who got involved with world vision, of course, which is also connected to Hinckley and his family, but Chapman, it was through, I think his, yeah, it was through his, um, it was through his drug uh, problems, essentially his, I mean, his problems were with psychedelic. I mean, he was, yeah, he was just frying his brain at like 15 years old with psychedelic drugs. And he ended up in some kind of YMCA, um, thing. And then they got him into world vision. Um, but did, so yeah, could you elaborate on that about about world vision?
0: Well, I was my my feel of world vision is that they have those kind of figures. They're fronts. They're CIA fronts. A lot of these help groups or UN things or a lot of intelligence ties. So you have this kind of like what you see in this movie, the New Path guys. These kind of bureaucrats, lower level bureaucrats, trying to get you into the system or suss you out. So I kind of got that feeling where. New Path was like World Vision was like Scientology was like Synanon, and and I think that that is a reflection in the book. But I think that was what was happening at that time. I mean, I don't know what the what was the Hinckley shooting or eighty eighty one. This book was in the seventies, so I think that that was the atmosphere. That was the kind of NGO environment was that there were these strange people with, you know, helping people in out of drugs and this part of this book and the real world system of the thing. And I think that's probably how uh, Chapman got brought into World Vision and and suspicious. And I, I vaguely back in the day, read about the intelligence ties of World Vision, like it was Christian, but there were there were people associated with the intel community behind World Vision, if I remember correctly.
2: Oh, yeah, there's no question. In Southeast Asia, I mean, that's not a, i mean, that's a mainline accepted fact they were doing intelligence work in, in Southeast Asia um, during Vietnam, um, but th- what's being portrayed, it's like the same thing, if you've seen Inherent Vice, right? It's the same things going on there in a more um, esoteric uh, way, but remember the, the uh, rehab center there, which is like a cult programming center, um, with, with a multi-purpose sort of cult programming, um, um, center. If you remember, I mean, it seems like the same kind of complex of, uh, um, this, the, the same kind of circular psyop is being portrayed uh, there as well. Right.
0: And I think the book blurb for this book compares Dick to Pinchon, if I remember correctly, but it's interesting. Like this is a more accessible vision of Pinchon's work, but yeah, no, I think, uh, I think that that was the time back then. I think that there were all kinds of weird, like Scientology um, NGOs. And if you look at Scientology, they had inordinate, just immense, thousands and thousands of weird front companies that they hid the actual name of Scientology from. So you could have like drug help centers and they would be in and you would think, oh, this is just an independent thing. And you get in there and find out this is just another Scientology front group um getting money no i I have
2: yeah i have an uncle who was who ran one of those centers um actually and this was either late 80s early 90s and he had problems with drugs and alcohol and um eventually like they had him running the the center but the thing is he he had stopped using drugs i don't know what he was on cocaine or whatever but he just couldn't stop uh drinking and he was even telling it was the point where he was trying to get clean he was saying i really need some help like and they kept insisting to him that he didn't have a problem but it was to the point where like he was so far gone that he would even acknowledge you know he had a problem um and he figured out later i mean it was it was a way to control him and god knows what else they were they were doing and finally he cut loose um of them but yeah there's all, all kinds of weird things going on in those centers
0: and that's the kind of weird distortment is that i am here to help you but in actuality i'm here to control you and that may be the whole thing about the drug psyop uh, story is that the initial temptation is this is something that will expand your capacities. But in fact, over time, you become either dead or totally uh, a slave to it, right? I mean, you become a slave to these drugs, whether it's alcohol or anything else. But those kind of intros to Scientology were much more common in the past. I recollect growing up. I grew up in Northern California. I remember seeing a lot of these things and they were all Scientology, and they, they were looking for a, what did, what did uh, Hubbard famously said? need more meat or need more flesh. Like That's the way he saw people coming into his organizations was that he could control and get money out of. So whatever, through whatever, drug fronts or Scientology flat out or all these things, you had to pay for everything, right? So um, well,
2: Sorry, one, one quick Huxley connection. I was looking up Nona Ryder. And yeah, her parents have a very interesting background. So she was named after Winona, Minnesota. Writer was given her middle name, Laura, because of her parents' friendship with Laura Huxley, writer Alice Huxley's wife. Everybody's sus, actually, in this. this There
0: you go. Even more so. There's like pictures of her being kissed by Leary, who said he's carrying on Crowley's work, right? And her dad was Leary's archivist. So he was the one who collected all of Leary's stuff. So she's firmly in that Gnostic... Uh, you know, New Age type of occultism from 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 birth. Um, but what uh, you know, what did what did Leary like to repeat the whole Gnostic thing that God is against you because he's keeping you from the tree of knowledge. So he would repeat that over and over again. But it's the Gnostic view where God is keeping you from enlightenment through knowledge instead of from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So it's a very convenient uh, twist on that but he should know better too but he was friends with Huxley too in my book children of the beast i have that conversation between him and huxley before huxley died easy day December, november 2nd 22nd 1963 but they're talking about whether lsd should be uh sent out to the public or kept it kind of special huxley took the kind of more elitist view and larry was uh the opposite of that but that's an intel guy too so you want to talk about intel and the cyclical nature of drugs and, and the capture of people and social engineering, I think in the real world, that was real. And I think Philip K. Dick was capturing that in this inner darkling.
1: Yeah. And one thing I think um, about about Dick that is interesting to to think about in the context of his later indulgence in these drugs and everything that we're talking about is, uh, is Jason Horsley has an article about Dick from some years ago from like 2015 and I know Jason in one of his next couple books in, in, in big mother, the technology of evil will treat PKD at some length. So I'm sure that that'll cause me to, to think a lot deeper about some of these things that we're currently considering with him. But, um, but, uh, but but Jason wrote before about PKD probably being autistic, uh, and that being uh, and that being a major influence on a lot of these concepts throughout um, throughout different writings in PKD's career, and that, that comes out explicitly in a couple places, like 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 Martian Time Slip, where where there where there's explicit portrayals and discussions of autism. But Jason, who's a who's a self-diagnosed autistic as well, who's written about that very insightfully uh, in ways that I've very personally benefited from is somebody who also considers himself on the autism spectrum. To, you know, talks about uh, the, the, the idea of, of just how fast time can move for the person on the spectrum um, and how, uh, how disorienting that can be and, um, and how that can relate to all these sci-fi concepts that PKD is dealing with there, you know, in, in, in these different novels and short stories, et cetera. Um, and, you know, and, and with these different portrayals of weird things going on with time or precognitive phenomena and all of that. And there's also other accounts that I've read that I find very persuasive that a lot of what was happening in terms of the high strangeness in Philip K. Dick's life was was genuine uh, precognition, which I do take to be a real phenomenon. I just don't think it has a spiritual significance that a lot of people who believe in it might, might ascribe to it. I Like I was talking about earlier, I think it could be be a distraction or a path to delusion or something that can, uh, that can even make you vulnerable to manipulation from both humans and non-humans. But we can think of maybe, of maybe Philip K. Dick as somebody who has these different kind of uh, traumas running throughout his life of being this socially maladapted uh, autistic person. Um, and then also um, I mentioned the, the, the kind of twinning thing with first century Thomas that he thought he also was, but then also um, the death of his twin sister uh, they were born prematurely and she died uh, six weeks after uh, after their birth. That haunted him for the rest of his life as well. So you have that kind of lingering death of the twin and that survivor's guilt uh, just really imprinting on, on on PKD psychologically. And so you have the kind of phantom twin motif through a lot of his writings because of that. So with all of that, I guess you could say it's no wonder that he would... Uh, cling to these, uh, to to these Gnostic spiritual experiences or ideas or these weird, weird phenomena with time or the idea of his books becoming real or all of that or even the drug use themselves because these are all, I think, uh, dissociations that can be used to protect him from these kind of traumas running throughout his life and these are all things on a spiritual and socio political level that can be manipulated as we know and and engineered as we see happening with M- with MK culture. So I think that that explains a lot of some of these basic dynamics with him as well.
0: I agree. I mean, he, he definitely plays with time and all the time throughout. That's a theme of all of his books, not just this one, His manipulating time. And and so he may have had, whether it was the drugs or sensibilities, but he acted like, I think he didn't keep relationships for very long. And uh was, you know... Not, yeah, maladapted is a good way to put it. But, uh, yeah, there's a lot. I mean, I think that he was a product of his time. I think that that was the 70s. This was what, the roaring 70s, cocaine, speed, all that stuff was taking place. It was just after the 60s. So you had a lot of people who got wrecked. You can talk to people at that time. There was a lot of madness, schizo, paranoia. All those, those were you know, running through the culture at that time. So um you guys have anything else? I mean I'm kind of uh I think that's I think it's an interesting it's an interesting book and Dick is an interesting figure. I think he captured the paranoia and the tech kind of environment, uh at least one of the best of the science fiction writers, in as much as his books are science fiction.
2: Yeah, in his book, uh, The Transmigration of Timothy Archer, there's there's some of the same kind of uh, paranoia that's behind this. He said in um I think a talk he gave at a sci-fi conference that he was uh it was the Nixon era and this climate of paranoia that that pervaded the Berkeley counterculture. I think that's the that's the comparison with pension to an inherent vice and all that, and, and some of pension's work too, that same basically that same culture we're talking about a paranoia, but yeah, it's in that they're, they're speculating about who so-and-so could be an agent for. And I mean, the historical background is, you know, co-intel pro which was the FBI's program to uh, infiltrate uh, anti-war black power uh, black Panthers groups um, and to turn them against each other, basically. Um, and then the CIA had a parallel program um, called chaos that was going on. So, I mean, that's part of the background um, to what's going on, what was feeding into the um, the paranoia. I mean, I do have another uh, question that I think is a big theme here, or it's not a big theme, but it's like a sub-theme that we, we shouldn't ignore. But the, the scramble suit's supposed to mean something too, right? He, he's the ultimate everyman. Right. And it just it seemed to me that was like, there's no coincidence that it's, it's Keanu Reeves, right, who's sort of the – how do you put Yeah, He's the Hollywood Jesus is what I sometimes like to call him. But as such, he's a kind of a blank slate um, sort of. Um, I mean, the, the Matrix is his. Um, yeah, is, is kind of his flagship uh, performance, because I think that's kind of what he represents in, in Hollywood and that. But it's so you're the ultimate everyman, but it sort of makes you no know one um, as well. You know, and then there's this reference to. DiCaprio in Catch Me If You Can when the Woody Harrelson character Ernie is telling this story about this uh imposter who pretends to be a master imposter, um, which I think sort of captures the intersection between postmodern self-reflexivity and, and the mass intelligence culture stuff that I'm describing. And they they kind of achieve this um this synergy. But in that movie, uh in Catch Me If You Can, you know, DiCaprio, it's it's this character kind of like um. Uh, the talented Mr. Ripley that Matt Damon played just this this kind of uh, kind of like the passenger that Jack Nicholson did in the 70s. And well, Jack Nicholson did it as well, like in five easy pieces. It's like this person who can be anyone who has no real identity, right, who's the perfect method actor um, in a way, too. So this theme kind of um, struck me, I thought was worth uh, asking you guys about.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that that uh, yeah, those kind of scramble suits there, are in addition to just kind of playing into all the the different layers of deception the movie is is reveling. In. I think, oh, and the Keanu connection, like that. Yeah, that that's a good insight. That yeah, the, uh, the ultimate everyman is is him of all of all people. Um, but yeah, it shows. I think also what something you have there is the overlap between this scrambling of identity, these kind of schizo themes in terms of being functional and related to particular espionage tasks like they're they're doing it to provide cover for themselves um, you know for all these different reasons related to their to their mission so there's this idea of this kind of deception and breakdown of identity as part of the, the saturation of espionage stuff into the culture and then you can see that that can overlap with these kind of paranormal or occult fixations where you have the simultaneous augmentation of the self of the ego to the entire cosmos that's so much of what the new Agers talk about as being ego death is simply like identifying yourself with everything and every one in this very psychologically and metaphysically greedy way that also you can see eventually when you you know dig further becomes the, the absolute annihilation and sacrifice of the self being everything and nothing in this very sinister sense. So I think you have that on both the espionage and the kind of metaphysical metaphysical level there.
0: Yeah, I agree with that. I agree that they're taking on this roles and losing their identity in this fake role. I think that that's a theme throughout this this book, if not all of Dick, is like, what's your real identity? So,
2: so I, I think the- I want to say to you, yeah, Keanu, I guess to clarify the point, like, he's the Hollywood Jesus in the sense that, like, he's Neo, right? He's the new man. He's the archetype of the, of the new man. This being a great, you know, project of, of modernity, of the communists and everybody else to create the new man, the new type of man. And here, like, who is, who is the new man, right? Is he a victim of a circular uh, psyop? um so i think that's that's part of why keanu yeah i mean I'd be very suspicious of of keanu roles from matrix um on because i think they many of them are part of this kind of programming
1: hmm. yeah we'll have to talk about the john wick movies at some point brett i haven't thought about those in relation to our themes that those would be interesting to tackle i know that i've just started seeing advertisements for the fourth installment uh, one other movie connection with this is you know, that this comes out a year after Batman Begins, and this is more just a kind of synchronistic resonance rather than I think than uh, than a purposeful reference because the the character you know the 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 Keanu uh, character in the film, his character in the book, is also called Bruce in the in the in the PKD book at the end when he's at the, the New Path facility. Um, but uh, but you know in Batman Begins, which is a movie that's pretty important to the overall um, the overall coming together of sci cinema analysis, since we analyzed it so early on. We were putting out episodes. Either the the blue flower that has this drug effect that causes these you know traumatic hallucinations, um, and then you have, you have the blue flower at the end of this one, which creates the substance, which creates substance D, and um, and so yeah, I, know, I was thinking that one, Bruce Wayne, and this one, the character also being named, being named Bruce, this movie coming out a year later. So just a little bit of a of a somewhat synchronistic connection there.
0: Yeah, but it also has that everyman quality, like the names that that Dick selected, Hank, Bob right? These very working class kind of one syllable working
1: class, unremarkable names. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. For sure. For sure. Uh, A couple other notes I have. One I just have to say, Brett earlier mentioned the Alex Jones scene, and I I can't over-exaggerate the amount of physical relief that I was flooded with when I saw Alex Jones on screen uh, just as uh, as this voice in the wilderness as Brett's head the whole movie is so oppressive to watch and so to have AJ come in and to start just like screaming truth for like 30 seconds was uh, was so was uh, something that helped get me through the film um, not to put AJ on too much of a pedestal but I will I will defend him and not 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 disavow him as many other conspiracy analysts do Um, But then something else. um, uh, uh, Oh, yeah, just about PKD's career. uh, The fact that the 1972 letter that he wrote to the FBI claiming to have been contacted, you know, uh, by somebody who was trying to get him to put coded novels in his, you know, in his work, you know, that that obviously, I think, is is, is very important. Uh, Very interesting, very telling whatever was actually going on there. It certainly works with all of these themes. Um, oh, but then about the, about about Linklater and about the movie, I find it um, I find it interesting that the person who wrote a screenplay for Scanner Darkly that was never um, that that was never produced. I think he wrote it in the late nineties. What, what was Charlie Kaufman, who's a very different uh, kind of filmmaker, very different figure than than, than Richard Linklater. But I guess it kind of makes sense that both these guys would be interested in Scanner Darkly and PKD. Um, a lot more of Kaufman's work as a as a screenwriter and director reflects the PKD style themes than Linklater's does. Uh, like a lot of stuff, like uh, Eternal Sunshine, of The Spotless Mind, and other things that um, that Kaufman wrote have much more of a much more of an obvious PKD kind of flair to them. But uh, I find I, I find Kaufman pretty detestable at this point, and I'm very embarrassed I ever enjoyed his work. I find it very uh, very grimy and self-indulgent And, um, and not insightful at all um, Even though some of it Might be slightly well, well, well crafted But the, the overlap between Kaufman and Linklater is that they both try to often portray like what you could say mundane interactions and bring a significance to them that you might not otherwise see in a lot of films. But in Kaufman, it's, this is done in a very miserable way with a lot of fanciful conceits behind them. Whereas, whereas typically in Linklater you have this kind of joy in the mundane and it's done in a very ordinary way. But, um, uh, but apparently uh, uh, Kaufman's script deviated from the novel a lot more than link did i haven't read kaufman's script uh but uh but there there's some there but there's some other references in kaufman's work to pkd style stuff i think um i think there's a there's there's a blue flower that's pretty big in the, in the film adaptation adaptation and also a reference one of the characters makes to a screenplay that they've done that has some similarities to scanner darkly uh broadly speaking so there's just just want to note that about Kaufman there and then about Linklater. I said some of this at the beginning, um, but we talked about this some last time. But while getting it, I'll emphasize the fact that that the fact that Linklater just disavowed Alex Jones the second that Alex Jones became you know became unacceptable to say anything good about him speaks a lot about the trajectory of Linklater's career um, and the presentation of his worldview. But even in some of these recent uh, these 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 recent films like. Like Boyhood or Everybody Wants Some that I mentioned, you can see why he, why somebody like Linklater would be seduced by by the darker parts of of MK of, of MK culture. Uh, like you know, Boyhood, this kind of. The, the, the kind of meaninglessness of everyday existence, like he's trying to basically, you know, this very like uh, in this one interview with Matthew McConaughey, McConaughey is interviewing Linklater, and they're talking about the end, uh, the end of Boyhood, where uh, you know the, the the couple characters smoke weed, and um, and one says, you yeah, know, everyone's always saying seize the moment, but I'm thinking it's the other way around the moment seizes us. And then the main character, the the boy that we followed, watched grow into adulthood says, it's like always right now, you know, just this, this really trite stuff. That's supposed to be very profound. Um, and, you know, another scene in that movie where the, that character, the main character, the boy asks his dad, what, what's the point. And, um, and then his dad tells him, well, I sure shit don't know. And neither does anyone else. We're all just winging it. You know, the good news is that you're feeling stuff. You got to hold on to that. Um, and, um, and basically, Linklater says, yeah, that that's basically his worldview. He says it's a little Eastern, a little Buddhist, but pretty non-denominational. So again, just like this, this really silly, spiritual, but not religious normy worldview of, oh, no one knows what's going on. But I guess just, uh, you know, just, just, but I guess it's just, you know, you live in the moment or let the moment seize you. And that's meaning in itself. And so like with that in mind, you could see how some of these stoner philosophy you know, pre- uh, um, preoccupations that Linklater lets into some of his movies could lead to these much darker mk culture spaces like i was uh like i was thinking about everybody wants some on, and i was like oh it's such an innocent movie just all these bros hanging out and you're just watching them have fun and have fun conversations and then i remember like oh there's a There's a there's a scene where there's like copious references to the Wizard of Oz and Alice in Wonderland within like five minutes of each other. Another scene where they're smoking weed and talking about telepathy and shamanism and stuff. So I don't think that Linklater is malicious, but with those things in mind and Scanner Darkly in mind, it just really shows the vulnerability of trite normie worldviews into being seduced by things that are much darker
0: yeah no you're right see you see that clarity in this from his early films and the treatment of a scanner darkly too right like just all the talking druggy talking that goes on in this movie that i i didn't need to have like 45 minutes of it them, <laughs> um, you know druggedly talking about each other going on adventures or whatever it's just like too much but uh i guess that that comes out of link later's i think that he could have he overemphasized that in the movie I mean, he, Probably didn't have to, in my view. Um, We're at about, let's see, where are we at? We're at 80 minutes. Do you guys have any final finishing statements or anything I missed or anything you want to add?
2: Well, I mean, there was uh, a little bit of occult kind of stuff. In in the movie, I mean, you see like Downey Jr. is very conspicuously wearing the all-seeing eye shirt, and then the next time we see him, he's going total, 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 total Providence, you know, Eye of Providence, and I mean, is it like a, it looked like a Masonic G that you see in the living room? Yeah. I don't know if it was some. Po- you really couldn't tell it was kind, of, but it's a big G in the middle. It certainly could be you know, certainly could be read like that. Um, there's a few other ones. I was going to just to gloss the Batman blue flower thing in both. It's interesting too. In both cases in this movie is kind of darkly. And a Batman begins the blue flower, is associated with, uh, you might call, it, you know, a bad uh, drug, and it's these these drug horror. I mean, both both Batman Begins and this this movie kind of is drug horror, and Batman Begins, like the last act, is is very much like a drug horror <laughs> film um, in a lot of ways. So, also, I'm glad Thomas has seen the light on Charlie Kaufman. That's that's exactly my my sentiments on on Kaufman. Um, I don't know. Let me see if I have, I think that's pretty much. Did you
0: notice talking about symbols? Did you notice the two
2: rackets up on the wall too? Isn't yeah. I like yeah. A,
0: some other symbol of, I've seen it somewhere else. I can't remember.
2: Well, we're talking about the, the bear thing too. So it's um, I'll quote and I quote the IMDb trivia here. Notice that, noticed all the bears. A the theme of bears can be noticed in the film. The meeting at the start is of the brown bear lodge. California state flag with the bear on it is seen in Arctor's house. Arctor's name appears to be derived from Ursus Arctos, the scientific name for the brown bear, and from the star Arcturus located in the Bootes constellation, which is also known as the Bear Keeper or Herder. So is there an astrological um thing going on there not really not really sure so the two rackets is from the
0: intro to eyes wide shut that's right there's like a symbol of the two rackets there too i forgot
1: about uh. that. Yeah.
2: Yeah I I sometimes look at the I mean that's I I do a lot of uh, sort of uh IMDb networking research but I need to start looking more at production designers and people because like because of at least one movie you know um Batman or, well, I mean Nolan used uh, Nathan Crowley as a production designer and hmm, someone under him is responsible for creating some of the alleged predictive programming stuff in the Dark Knight Rises. So yeah, looking at some of the folks who do the props, because I think that Linklater is not a puppeteer like director. Linklater is not Stanley Kubrick. I think Linklater is not making the kind of films anymore. He was really kind of good at making. Um, So yeah, I mean, it's, I don't think the stuff even comes from
1: Linklater is my, my guess.
0: Yeah. I wouldn't be surprised.
1: Yeah, and then I guess you know just to conclude, I guess I would just reiterate that um, my the ambiguous feelings I have towards PKD were rather solidified by looking at this book and movie and uh, and, and this discussion. I think he's a very tragic victim of uh, of MK culture who tried to claw his way out of the labyrinth and uh, couldn't quite get there. But isn't a villain, but sure, certainly should his work should be looked at with. Um, uh, with a lot of scrutiny and should be handled with a lot of caution because I think that there's a lot of um, a lot of traps there unintentionally and my my view of Linklater certainly has gotten uh, a bit dimmer from watching from from watching this film. But hey, I'm glad uh, uh, I'm glad that there was the Alex Jones scene in there. Like uh, you know, I really love the end of his rant: "Stop selling out your own species." That's something to be remembered.
0: That's a good one. Yeah, stop selling out your own species. is A good one to end it on. I mean, I think my my full take is that. PKD was reflecting in his book his, tra- his own tragedy that he went mad, and uh, brain misfired and it's in this book too. It's like the dual brain, and I think that's the tra I mean, he finishes it in the book, and the movie finishes it with all the people who didn't make it either died or uh, were ruined by the culture they were involved in. I think that's the ultimate warning, and that's the ultimate warning of the psyop, of the larger culture, and the film and book, is don't get involved. I mean, you just hear all these tragic stories of the people. You're like, I, I thought I was getting something good out of this. Now I'm controlled. And I think that that's really the subtext of the, the book and film is that they are under control of a malevolent force in this substance D, substance death. So that would be my take. Anyway, guys, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. It's great to talk with you. you guys are super smart and the themes are great. And I really appreciate all the uh, input you have. So thanks so much.
1: Yeah, thanks, William. Always fun to come on your
0: show.
2: Thank you, William. All right, take care. Stay there. Bye-bye. Stay there.